Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks. For Thursday, May 7th, 2020, I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you live from Medora, North Dakota, in the southwestern portion of that state, the Badlands, where Theodore Roosevelt was a cattle rancher from 1883, uh, roughly up through that terrible winter of 86, 87. I'm glad to be with you today, acknowledging that today is the 75th anniversary of what was uh, titled in big letters on the front pages, V.E. Day, Victory in Europe, the sacrifice of so many millions to defeat evil. And it was on this date that uh, officially accepted was the German surrender of the previous evening. So many of the soldiers while celebrating uh, in Europe felt their destiny was probably not to head home, but instead to head to Japan for the rough slogging, uh, perhaps what experts thought would take years. Again, the sacrifice of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives of American soldiers, sailors, Marines. Instead, the war would come to a quick, unexpected conclusion in early August of 1945. Uh, throughout the rest of this summer here in Medora, not only at our Military Appreciation Day, July 12th, but throughout the season, when we salute our veterans, uh, very much on our minds will be the Sacrifices made by those uh, generations ago now, 75 years ago, the ending of World War II in Europe, of course, still thousands of lives uh, to be lost in action, transport, accidents uh, before returning home, uh, just in Europe alone. So uh, now that we've got the situation at hand that we do, I, I cannot help but think of our Canadian neighbors who come down and visit us here in Medora in the summertime. Uh, who uh, in their anthem uh, pledged to stand on guard for thee, their country. Uh, those folks, uh, of course, are the descendants of our allies and friends who went ashore on D-Day 76 years ago next month. Those included Theodore Roosevelt's son, Ted Jr., amongst the Americans, tens of thousands of Canadians, they too making a great sacrifice. And here in Medora and throughout this country, we stand on guard. We shall not let this great inheritance that came to us from that greatest generation, we shall not let their sacrifice have been made in vain. We shan't let, let that great inheritance slip between our fingers, not on our watch, 
So to all of those on guard and those especially on the front lines, we're with you. And let's do everything we can to get this country back up on its feet. On this day in history, in addition to the end of uh, the war in Europe, at least again, the, the, the end of the formal war, on this day, May 7th, 1774, in Princeton, New Jersey, the birth of William Bainbridge. He would go on to be an American Commodore, a, a win glory for the United States in the Mediterranean against the Barbary Pirates, and, and then especially in the War of 1812. And recall that Theodore Roosevelt, as a young man, wrote his uh, big uh, first book, A Naval History of the War of 1812. Uh, Bainbridge was appointed to command uh, in late uh, 1812, the beginning of that war, the USS Constitution. Uh, he had uh, been the captain of the Constellation, but had sat in Chesapeake Bay getting ready for a war that we declared, but for which we were unprepared. And so taking over the Constitution, uh, succeeding Captain Isaac Hole, uh, off the coast of Brazil, uh, December 29th, uh, the Constitution engaged the Java. Uh, in his book, Theodore Roosevelt does a good deal to uh, estimate the uh, the tonnage, uh, the displacement, the uh, the uh, uh, the cannon uh, and the uh, the weight of uh, cannon uh, to be thrown uh, in battle, the size of the sails. He gets down into some great details. But I couldn't help in re-reading uh, Theodore Roosevelt's description of the battle between the Constitution and the Java that it reads a little bit like the scene directions must read uh, for something like Master and Commander, uh, that great book about uh, the, uh, uh, the wars on the uh, seas between the British and the French during the Napoleonic uh, War. Here's the conclusion of the battle as told by young Theodore Roosevelt. Finally, the ship separated. The Java's bowsprit passing over the taffrail of the Constitution. The latter at once kept away to avoid being raked. The ships again got nearly abreast, but the Constitution, in her turn, forereached, whereupon Commodore Bainbridge wore, passed his antagonist, luffed up under his quarter, raked him with the starboard guns, then wore, and recommenced the action with his port broadside at about 3.10 in the afternoon. Again, the vessels were abreast, and the action went on as furiously as ever. The wreck of the top hamper uh, on the Java, lay over her starboard side, so that every discharge of her guns set her on fire, and in a few minutes her able and gallant commander was mortally wounded by a ball fired by one of the American main topmen. The command then devolved on the first lieutenant, Chads, himself painfully wounded. The slaughter had been terrible, yet the British fought on with stubborn resolution, cheering lustily, but success was now hopeless, for nothing could stand against the cool precision of the Yankee fire. The stump of the Java's foremast was carried away by a double-headed shot. The mizzenmast fell. The gaff and spanker boom were shot away. Also, the main yard, and finally, the ensign was cut down by a shot, and all her guns absolutely silenced. When, at 4.05 p.m., the Constitution, thinking her adversary had struck, ceased firing, hauled aboard her tacks and passed across her adversary's bows to windward with her topsails, jib, and spanker set. A few minutes afterward, the Java's main mast fell, leaving her a sheer hulk. The Constitution assumed a weatherly position and spent an hour in repairing damages and securing her masts. Then she wore and stood toward her enemy, whose flag was again flying, 
but only for bravado, for as soon as the Constitution stood across her forefoot, she struck. At 525, she was taken possession of by Lieutenant Parker, first of the Constitution, and one of the latter's only two remaining boats. Uh, fascinating in telling this story to see that the uh, Constitution on boarding the, uh, the Java and uh, caring for her crew and wounded, uh, the uh, Java would be sunk. It was in such terrible disrepair. The mast that you read had fallen in the latter action. The main mast of the Constitution was so damaged that the craftsmen aboard the Constitution replaced their mast with the down mast from the Java. When you visit in Boston now, the museum, the USS Constitution, its main mast is the main mast that was taken uh, by Bainbridge uh, in this battle. His birthday celebrated today. His name also remembered by the United States Navy. Currently, the USS Bainbridge is a destroyer of the United States Navy. Uh, did, you, uh, did you see the movie about uh, was it Captain Phillips starring Tom Hanks, a, uh, uh, a, a transport ship, a tanker of some sort, the Maersk, Alabama, uh, taken over by Somali pirates uh, and uh, Captain Phillips taken as a hostage in a covered lifeboat from, from the Maersk, Alabama. Uh, when three United States Navy SEALs took their highly accurate shots, saving the life of uh, Captain Phillips and killing his three uh, pirate captors, they were shooting off of the fantail of the USS Bainbridge. The lifeboat uh, for the, uh, uh, the Maersk, Alabama, uh, which saw this action, is now also in a museum at the United States Navy SEAL Museum in Florida. Happy birthday! And uh, while I would uh, hope to read at greater length about that battle, go find A Naval History of the War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt and have yourself a good read. On this date in uh, 1812, the birth in London, England of Robert Browning, the English poet, I'm sure recommended uh, to be on every shelf by the man uh, who we remember here in Medora. May 7th, 1836, the birth in Guilford County, North Carolina of Joseph Gurney Cannon. He's the namesake of the Cannon House Office Building in Washington, D.C., lawyer and politician, 40th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, very long-serving speaker, very long-serving member of Congress from Vermilion County along the Vermilion River in Danville, Illinois. A wonderful story about how uh, being on his way to uh, Chicago, he ran out of money, was on a train without a ticket, uh, uh, departed to the train at Tuscola, Illinois, eventually settling professionally in uh, Vermilion. His home is now the Vermilion County Historical Society Museum. Well worth a visit when you're off of Interstate 74 between uh, 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 Indianapolis and Champaign-Urbana. And uh, Uncle Joe Cannon would say of Theodore Roosevelt, President Roosevelt has as much use for the Constitution as a tomcat has for a marriage license. Uh, They uh, still accomplished a great deal for the American people. May 7th, 1901, not far from here to the west, the birth in Helena, Montana of Gary Cooper, the American actor. I was amazed to learn he died in 1961 at the age of 60. He attended high schools in Helena and Bozeman, uh, Bozeman Technical College before going on to Grinnell College in Iowa. He did not graduate, 
and he was not allowed to be a member of the theater club, instead doing some uh, illustrations and a bit of debate. In 1924, Cooper's father left his seat on the Montana Supreme Court and went to Los Angeles as an attorney to settle the estates of two relatives. Young Gary Cooper would follow, became involved as an extra and then an actor in silent films, making his first talking film in 1929. He starred in the lead role of The Virginian, based on the 1889 novel of the same name, written by T.R.'s Harvard chum and lifelong friend Owen Wister from Germantown, Pennsylvania. So uh, a little bit uh, of a connection there between Gary Cooper, his great uh, career, and uh, the legacy of our cowboy times here. May 7th, 1914, the United States Congress establishes Mother's Day. And we hope each and every one of you will celebrate with your mother in some way this Mother's Day. Uh, I give thanks for mine and uh, and look forward to uh, seeing the, the moms of North Dakota and the country come to, to Medora. May 7th, 1915, uh, His Royal Majesty's ship, the Lusitania, sunk by a German submarine off the southern coast of Ireland. 1,198 lives lost. 128 of 139 American citizens aboard lost their lives, including uh, friends and colleagues, uh, acquaintances of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Albert Hubbard, the writer and publisher, the founder of the Roycroft community uh, up near Buffalo, New York, the theatrical producer, Charles Froman, the multimillionaire businessman, but 37 years old, uh, uh, the uh, inheritor of uh, uh, the great fortune of the Vanderbilts, head of the New York Central Railroad, Alfred Gwynn Vanderbilt, and the president of Newport News Shipbuilding, Albert L. Hopkins, among so many others, including women and children. Theodore Roosevelt was in the midst of the Barnes v. Roosevelt libel trial, uh, he having to defend himself uh, from uh, charges of libel uh, filed by Barnes, and, and the trial being such that Roosevelt spent many days in the stand uh, uh, he had to prove his case that uh, what he had stated in his columns was factually accurate. And and uh, Barnes now, uh, the day following the sinking, being due up on uh, the bench, Theodore Roosevelt heard word of the sinking of the Lusitania. And uh, uh, it was uh, rather oh, thin news with regards to any details. And then a call late at night, just before midnight from the Associated Press, Theodore Roosevelt, according to Edmund Morris in his great final tome on TR, The Colonel, he states that uh, uh, the inevitable phone call came from an Associated Press reporter around midnight. Theodore Roosevelt was staying at the uh, uh, home of Mr. Wilkinson involved in his uh, legal defense. And uh, Wilkinson is the one who uh, reports uh, uh, how this went. Roosevelt says, according to Morris and Wilkinson, all right, I'll speak to him, the late calling reporter. The reporter gave Roosevelt the full story that would appear in tomorrow's papers. There had been 1,918 souls aboard the Lusitania, and only 520 had so far been rescued. The ship had sunk in 15 minutes, going down so fast that at least 1,000 passengers were presumed dead, many of them mothers with children. That's murder, Wilkinson heard the colonel say. Will I make a statement? Yes, yes. I will make it out now. Just take this. It appeared as dictated on Saturday, May 8th, 
in newspapers around the country. I can only repeat what I said a week ago, when in similar fashion the American vessel the Gulflight was destroyed off the English coast and its captain drowned. This represents not merely piracy, but piracy on a vaster scale of murder than any old-time pirate ever practiced. This is the warfare which destroyed Louvain and Dinant and hundreds of men, women, and children in Belgium. It is warfare against innocence, traveling on the ocean and to our fellow countrywomen who are among the sufferers. It seems inconceivable that we can refrain from taking action in this matter, for we owe it not only to humanity, but to our own national self-respect. Morris goes on to say that uh, Roosevelt, who spoke these words knowing that there were uh, at least three German surnames on his 12-member jury, not knowing uh, how strongly their pro-German views might be, uh, Colonel uh, Roosevelt did what he thought was right. The uh, President, Wilson, spent three and a half days ruminating at night walking about Washington, D.C. on his lonesome, refusing to see visitors through the weekend, going out for a country drive, very contemplative. Uh, he uh, finally uh, was to appear and make a, uh, a speech. Uh, he uh, would do so at uh, uh, some location, Philadelphia, uh, speaking at a, a gathering of recently naturalized citizens, according to Edmund Morris. And uh, picking up with Morris, to general amazement, Wilson did not mention the Lusitania or Germany or the war. He talked about ideals and visions and dreams and touching hearts with all the nations of mankind. But one declaration expressing his personal attitude toward conflict rang out with particular impact. This is quoting Wilson. The example of America must be the example not merely of peace because it will not fight, but of peace because peace is the healing and elevating influence of the world and strife is not. There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight. Can you think of a more anti-Rooseveltian point of view with regards to what the right or righteous thing would have been to have done, done in the uh, aftermath of the sinking of the Lusitania. I posted a little picture on Facebook yesterday Yesterday of a young uh, Theodate Pope, also Theodote, Theodate Pope Riddle. She was among the survivors, an American, a former student of Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut, where, by the way, Anna Roosevelt Cowles, Bammy, Auntie Bai, lived in uh, Farmington uh, at this time. A, a brilliant young architect, a member of the Progressive Party, and the first female architect to be licensed in New York State, the first to be so licensed in Connecticut. On May 1st, 1915, she boarded the British Ocean Liner, the RMS Lusitania, as a first-class passenger, together with her maid, Miss Emily Robinson, and Professor Edwin W. Friend, a fellow Farmington resident. After the ship was torpedoed, Pope, Robinson, and Friend made for the lifeboats. The Lusitania's crew was inexperienced at launching the boats, and Pope saw one lifeboat tip all of its passengers into the sea. Pope and Friend decided that it would be a better idea to jump from the deck. Before jumping, Theodate turned to her maid, saying, Come, Robinson. In the water, Pope was buffeted by debris and struggling swimmers. She was struck on the head by debris. 
quote, people all around me were fighting, striking, and struggling, she later recalled. Then a man, insane with fright, made a sudden jump and landed clean on my shoulders, believing I could support him. She lost consciousness in the water, and when she was rescued, she was initially placed among the dead, until another rescued passenger recognized signs of life in her, although it took two hours before she could be revived. Neither Robinson nor Professor Friend survived. After the death of Theodore Roosevelt, and from 1919 until its completion in 1922, Theodate Pope would be the architect of the restoration of the Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace National Historic Site at 28 East 20th Street in New York City. This woman saved from the Lusitania that would go on to give us this a great gem that we have in Lower Manhattan, the Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace. And, and so good morning to my friends there. We're remembering your architect, uh, Theodate Pope Riddle on this date. Uh, that does bring me to a time where a friend has mentioned, boy, that just be about perfect end right now, but I promised you some barnstorming through, uh, through California, and I shan't do all of the speeches made that day, uh, a trip that went from Barstow to Victorville, San Bernardino, down to Redlands, uh, and, uh, and also to uh, Riverside. Uh, I had the pleasure of being at Redlands University, uh, Redlands College in those days. Theodore Roosevelt spoke there. There's a big R up on the side of the hill, and they're proud of their affiliation with Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, how about uh, a little bit of the, uh, the statement uh, made at Redlands uh, to uh, conclude? It's uh, got a bit of meat on the bone, so uh, here we go. Uh, May 7th, 1903, Theodore Roosevelt, Redlands, California. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Governor, and you, my fellow Americans, men and women of California, I am glad indeed to have the chance to visit this wonderful and beautiful state. And let yet first, let me tell you, my fellow citizens, I did not need to come here to be one of you and devoted to your interests. I know California. I know what her sons and daughters are and what they have done. For if I did not, I would augur myself but a poor American. Rarely have I enjoyed a day more than this. I waked up coming through the Mojave Desert, and all that desert needs is water. And I believe you are going to get it. Then we came down into this wonderful garden spot. And though I had been told all about it, told about the fruits and the flowers, told of the wonderful fertility and thought I knew about it, it was not possible in advance to realize all the fertility, all the beauty that I was to see. Indeed, I congratulate myself on having had the chance to visit you. Coming today over the mountain range, coming down here, seeing what you have done, makes me realize more and more how much this whole country should lay stress on what can be done by the wise use of water, and therefore the wise use of the forests on the mountains. When I come to California, I can sit at the feet of Gamaliel and learn about forestry and water. I do not have to preach it. All I can do is to ask you to go ahead and follow your own best practice. The people of our country have grown to realize and are more and more in practice showing that they realize how indispensable it is to preserve the great forests on the mountains and to use aright the water supply that those forests conserve. 
This whole country here in Southern California shows what can be done by irrigation, what can be done by settlers foresighted enough to use the resources in such way as to perpetuate and uh, better not exhaust them. We have passed the time when we could afford to let any man skin the country and leave it. Forestry, irrigation, all the efforts of the nation and the state governments, all the efforts of the individual and of local associations are to be bent to the object of building up the interests of the homemaker. The man we want to favor is the man who will come to live and whose interest it is that his children and his children's children shall enjoy to an even greater degree what he has enjoyed himself. He is the man whom we must encourage in every possible way. And it is because he is awake to his true interests that the marvelous progress has been made, largely through forestry, largely through irrigation, here in California and elsewhere in the mighty Western land which forms the major half of this Republic. I think our citizens are more and more realizing that they wish to perpetuate the things that are of use and also the things that are of beauty. You in California are preserving your great natural scenery, your great objects of nature, your valleys, your giant trees. You are preserving them because you realize that beauty has its place as well as use, because you wish to make of this state even more than it is now the garden spot of the continent, the garden spot of the world. Here in Southern California, I wish to congratulate you upon the way in which your citizens have built up these new cities of which I speak in well nigh the newest. These new cities and this new country in fashion illustrate the efforts of the pioneer, of the early settler, of the man who first turns to account virgin soil and yet have been fortunate enough to escape the roughness, the rawness that too often necessarily accompanies such early settlement. Already in what you have done, you people of this new land, you have been fortunate to set examples which it would be well for the cities and the country districts of older lands to follow. Because fundamentally, men and women whom I am addressing, we must remember that much though climate and soil can do, it is man himself who does most. I congratulate you upon your astounding material prosperity. I congratulate you upon your fruit farms, your orchards, your ranches, upon your cities, upon your industrial and agricultural development. But above all, I congratulate you on the quality of your citizenship. I am glad to meet you and to be greeted by you. I know the rest of you will not grudge my saying that among all of you who have greeted me, I prize most the presence of the men who fought in the Great War. Two years ago, you came here to welcome your comrade, my chief and predecessor in office, President McKinley. He had fought in the war in which you fought. He had done his part in the work that you did the work which, if left undone, would have meant that today we had neither country nor president. Now we of the younger generation are bound in honor and in good faith to carry on the work that he and you did in war, the work that he did in peace. The lessons you taught were not lessons of war only. There are lessons to be applied in peace just as much. In the war, it was necessary to have training. It was necessary to have arms. But the thing that was fundamental was to have men. You won because you had in you the quality which drove you forward to victory. You won because in the iron times you showed that you could recognize each man for his naked worth as a man. You fought for liberty under the law. 
through the law, not license, not any spirit that rises above the law, the self-governing liberty of self-governing and self-restraining free men who know that anarchic violence, that disorder of any kind is the handmaiden of tyranny, the foe of freedom. I greet you first, you on whose conduct we must model ours. Next, I greet the future. I am very glad, my fellow citizens, that you do so well with fruits, crops, and all of that, but I am even more pleased that you do as well with children. To the children, I have got but one word to say, and that applies just as well to the grown-up people, too. I believe in play, and I believe in work. Play hard while you play, and when you work, do not play at all. That is common sense for all of us. I wish to express my thanks to the men of the National Guard, some of whom wear medals which show that they fought in the same war in which I did. Ours was a little war, but we hope that we showed the desire at least not to fall too far short of the standards set by you of the Great War. I must thank especially the gentlemen in the not unfamiliar uniform whom I see before me. Now, just one word in closing. Do you know what strikes me most as I meet you, the people of Southern California, representing a community which has drawn its numbers from all the civilized peoples of the globe, from all the states of the Union? What strikes me most is that good Americans are good Americans from one end of the Union to the other. I come to speak to you, and I appeal to you for the same ideals and in the same name of the same great principles and the same great men who illustrate those principles as I should speak on the Atlantic seaboard. You, the men of the West, the men preeminently American, the men and women who illustrate in their lives exactly those characteristics which we are proudest to consider as typical of our country. I greet you because I am at home with you, because there is no longer any need of saying that the worst American, the genuine traitor to the country, is the man who would inflame either section against section or class against class. Good laws can do much. Good administration of the laws can do much. We have both. Law and the honest enforcement and administration of the law can do much, but most of all must be done by the man himself. Nothing can take the place of the exercise of the man's own individual qualities. Just exactly as in battle, it is the man behind the gun who counts most, and just exactly as it is true that the change in tactics does not mean any change in the fundamental qualities necessary to make the soldier, so it is true of good citizenship. You and I, you who went to the Philippines, we who fought in the smaller war, we had a small caliber, high power gun if we were lucky. You did not have it at first in the Philippines, I understand. We had new weapons, we had new tactics, but we did well exactly in proportion as we had the spirit that made you do well from 61 to 65. Weapons change and tactics change, but the same kind of men who did well in Caesar's 10th Legion would have done well following Grant or Lee in the days before Appomattox. No weapon, no system of tactics could take the place of the fighting edge in the man, of the courage, resolution, power of individual initiative, readiness to obey and to obey on the instant, power to act by oneself and yet to act in combination with one's fellows. So now it is in citizenship. Something can be done by law, 
but no law that the wit of man can devise can make out of a man who has not got the spirit of decency and clean living in him a decent man. No law that the wit of man can devise will ever make the weakling, the man who does not know how to handle himself, able to hold his own in competition with his fellows. Law can and must secure justice, justice alike to the rich and to the poor, to the man in the country and the man in the town, to prevent anyone from wronging his fellows and to safeguard him against wrong in return. But after the law has done uh, that, it yet remains true, as it will remain true in the future, as it has remained true since history dawned, that the prime factor in working out any man's success must be the sum of that man's own individual qualities. We need strong bodies. More than that, we need strong minds. And finally, we need what counts for more than body, more than mind, character. Character into which many elements enter, but three above all. In the first place, morality, decency, clean living, the faculty of treating fairly those round about, the qualities that make a man a decent husband, a decent father, a good neighbor, a good man to deal with or to work beside, the quality that makes a man a good citizen of the state, careful to wrong no one. We need that first as the foundation. And if we have not got that, no amount of strength or courage or ability can take its place. No matter how able a man is, how good a soldier naturally, if the man were a traitor, then the abler he was, the more dangerous he was to the regiment, to the army, to the nation. It is so in business, in politics, in every relation of life. The abler a man is, if he is a corrupt politician, an unscrupulous businessman, a demagogic agitator who seeks to set one portion of his fellow men against the other, his ability makes him, but by so much more, a curse to the community at large. In character, we must have virtue, morality, decency, square dealing as the foundation, and it is not enough. It is only the foundation. In war, you needed to have the man decent, patriotic, but no matter how patriotic he was, if he ran away, he was no good. So it is in citizenship. The virtue that stays at home in its own parlor and bemoans the wickedness of the outside world is of scant use to the community. We are a vigorous, masterful people, and the man who is to do good work in our country must not only be a good man, but also emphatically a man. We must have the qualities of courage, of hardihood, of power to hold one's own in the hurly-burly of actual life. We must have the manhood that shows on fought fields and that shows in the work of the business world and in the struggles of civic life. We must have manliness, courage, strength, resolution, joined to decency and morality, or we shall make but poor work of it. Finally, those two qualities by themselves are not enough. In addition, see, in addition to decency and courage, we must have the saving grace of common sense. We, all of us have known decent and valiant fools who have meant so well that it made it all the more pathetic that the effect of their actions was so ill. Men and women of California, I believe in you. I believe in your future because I think that the average citizenship of this state has in it just exactly the qualities of which I have spoken. I believe in the future of this nation because I think that the average citizenship of the nation also is based on those three qualities, the quality of decency, the quality of courage, 
and the saving grace of common sense. I greet you today. I am glad to be here in your beautiful country. I am glad to see you, men and women of California. I wish you well, and I firmly believe that your mighty future will make your past, great though your past is, seem small by comparison. And my, what a great state California has become in so many ways. This, of course, presages. This is the first day in his life, May 7th, 1903, that Theodore Roosevelt has seen California. And before he leaves the state, he will see it from a remote uh, a loft uh, of Yosemite with John Muir. That's in the days ahead here at Teddy Talks, remembering most especially all of those valiant souls, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, the good citizens of the countries below, remembering all of those who gave their lives for freedom and to defeat evil, to take up their responsibility. Uh, we thank those from World War II, celebrating the 75th anniversary of VE Day, the victory in Europe, celebrating all of you who are on the front lines. God bless, God speed, and we'll see you tomorrow here at Teddy Talk. Goodbye. Good luck.